Well, it's a distinct joy and humble privilege to be here to worship amongst you all and with you all, worshiping our sovereign Lord and uh, giving him all the glory. And that's why we're here, right? To praise and honor and worship him and to even go beyond that and obviously hear from his word and what it means, not just as we read it, as it means to David and Saul in this passage in 1 Samuel 24, but how it also pertains to us as followers of Christ. So as Dylan said, please open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. They invited me to preach this, and I was very happy to oblige. I mean, this is a phenomenal passage. I know you all have been going through 1 Samuel, and it's quite a roller coaster of a ride as we see God's work in David and Saul and Samuel. And we're going to continue and see that as well as 1 Samuel 24 continues to show the gradual rise of David to kingship. And it also demonstrates the downward spiral of Saul's looming and tragic end, which you will eventually see at the end of 1 Samuel. But before we actually dive right into that, let's bow our heads and pray as the Lord speaks to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Your word is true. It's powerful. It's capable of transforming lives. And it speaks to us. It's, it's alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. So I pray now as we look at this striking, intriguing chapter that you would open up all of our hearts to receive the content, the truth, and the implications and principles that are contained in this passage. Lord, we need you. We cannot do anything without you. We are nothing without you. So speak to our hearts this morning from your holy word. Guide my tongue as I preach your word. And may, above all, you be blessed and glorified. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 24 continues what really started in chapter 18 with Saul's jealousy toward David and his subsequent murderous attempts on David's life, all of which, as we see throughout these chapters, proved to be futile. But chapter 24 reveals much about, as interestingly enough, as we were just learning about this morning, God's sovereign operations in these two men's lives. It's a striking example of how one, as David does, ought to handle a person who seeks your harm and entreats you unjustly, just as Saul was doing to David. We see David here in this passage given the opportunity to get revenge on Saul but he decides to take another route that can only be attributed to the work of God in David's heart. In fact, the title of this sermon is Leaving Revenge in God's Hands. Revenge is a natural human tendency, albeit it is sinful. 
We want to get even, right? If someone does us harm, if someone abuses us in any form or any manner, we want to get even. We want to see justice. Revenge is often a natural internal disposition of the sinful human heart toward anyone who hurts or seeks our harm. Revenge is wanting us, we want to get our pound of flesh. People retaliate. People want to see immediate justice. People take matters into their own hands more often than not, or at least they want to. We often see that on the world stage in geopolitics, do we not? You cross me, I'm going to cross you. You do something to me, I'm going to do something to you to get back. But what happens in this episode with David and Saul, as Saul hunts down David, what are we going to see here? What we see in David is a remarkable example of God's sovereignty over his life and also how David leaves revenge and leaves judgment in God's hands. While we look at David and Saul in this passage, though, however, we also want to consider how this relates to you and me. What are some principles that we can extrapolate from this passage and put into our lives this day as followers of Jesus Christ? For all scripture is instructional to us, gives us hope, encouragement, perseverance as we press on as believers in Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, we will read each section. There are three sections here. I'm going to divide it in three different parts. The first part is the action. The second two parts are lengthy dialogues that come from first David and then Saul. In fact, in all of 1 Samuel, this is the time where we see David and Saul speaking the most. And we're going to figure out and find out what is the significance of each one of these dialogues. Jam-packed in each one is truth that we can all learn. And so David could have easily executed revenge on Saul. But what we see here are three ways, three ways that we can learn, but what we also see in David and in the scene as it develops that we should apply if ever you and I desire to take revenge on someone who seeks our harm and we desire to take matters into our own hands with revenge. So let's start with the first way. This first way, and it ties perfectly in. I didn't know that you were all going to be talking about God's sovereignty today, but it ties perfectly with what was spoken previously in the service. The first thing we are to do is acknowledge God's sovereignty. And so in each section, I'm going to read this portion of Scripture so that it's fresh in your mind as we talk about it. Acknowledge God's sovereignty. We see this in verses 1 to 7. So if you would divert your attention to verses 1 to 7. The word of God says, Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rock of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy 
into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now, as we read this, I think it's quite obvious that um, David is being sovereignly protected by God. We see glimpses, glimpses of this from chapter 23, which you all went over last week. David is sovereignly being protected by God. As you recall from chapter 3 of last week, Saul was diverted as he was hunting down, chasing David and his men, Saul was diverted by a Philistine raid that Saul was actually summoned to deal with. And that caused a little bit of a break from Saul chasing David. And, and, and even David called that place where that escape happened the rock of escape in chapter 23, verse 28, which is a reminder of David and his men's escape from Saul's maniacal manhunt against David, which again is an indication that God's sovereign hand is on David's life. Now after this incident, David chose, along with his men, to, do, to depart to an area called En Gedi. This is an, o an oasis. They had been in the areas of the Judean wilderness, and now they want to go to a more stronger and fortified stronghold. So they go to En Gedi, this oasis which is just west of the Dead Sea. It's an area, if you've ever had the privilege of going to Israel and seeing this, it's a beautiful area. It's resplendent with, with limestone mountains and massive rocks, many caves, lush vineyards, and a huge, massive, refreshing waterfall. In fact, the word En Gedi means spring of the young goat, and in that area, peppered all over the rocks, are ibexes or goats walking all up and down the, the rock walls. It was an ideal stronghold for David as a fugitive to hide from Saul's hot pursuit. But check this out. Even more than En Gedi being suitable protection for David and his men, God himself was David's ultimate stronghold, his ultimate hiding place, his ultimate refuge. How do we know that? Well, during this, these incidences of David as he's on the chase by Saul, he writes or he is composing psalms that reflect what he's going through and he's praying about how God is his refuge, God is his rock upon which he stands, and God is his protection. In fact, we're not going to go here, but if you want to write it down, Psalms 57 and 142 speak of this particular incident in 1 Samuel 24 when David hid in the cave of En Gedi. And it's good to understand from these Psalms that David prayed to God during this time. He was trusting in God more than even his 600 men, more than his military prowess, or the cave that protected him. 
Let's now see this unfold more as we look at these first seven verses. Verse 1, as we know, picks up the pursuit of David by Saul and his army. And it seems often, as Saul is on the chase, that Saul was constantly being told by his spies about David's whereabouts. As soon as the Philistines were taken care of in chapter 23, which really is Israel's primary enemy, not David, Saul, nevertheless, went back and chased David, which was his perceived and made-up enemy. I mean, David seems to be more of a menacing enemy to Saul than even the Philistines were. Consider who David was. We've been learning that all the way from chapter 16 and 17 and so forth. David was a shepherd, a poet, and a musician, and of course, we learn that he's also a courageous young man who trusted in Yahweh as he defeated Goliath. But in Saul's jealous, paranoid, egomaniacal thinking, David is an enemy. An enemy who apparently, as we know here in, in verse 2, required a massive army to go after. David had 600 men, a bunch of, it was a motley crew. Some were considered misfits coming from all walks of life. And Saul had 3,000 well-trained men hand-picked from all of Israel. Saul knew David was a mighty warrior. And he remembered, obviously, that not too long ago he defeated Goliath. And perhaps this was the reason why Saul chose so many soldiers to go after him. And so here they are at the rock Rocks of the wild goats in En Gedi and a wild goose chase. Now, verse 3. Verse 3 is what really gets interesting. It's like the suspense of the drama intensifies. And God's sovereignty is shown to operate in a remarkable, incredible way here. What we learn as we, as we look through Scripture and see God's sovereignty playing out in passages like this and elsewhere that, as Isaiah says, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are totally different from ours. And so God is sovereignly in control of this situation. What is happening here as we get to verse 3? Well, Saul, he steps away from his massive army and he decides to take a bathroom break from chasing David, as the text says, to relieve himself. To relieve in the Hebrew literally means to cover one's feet. Most scholars, as you'll read, will see that it's a euphemism or some kind of idiom for going to the bathroom. And that's all I'll say about that. We, we don't, you get the point. He found a cave, he went in there, and when nature calls, Saul went. However, even more interesting... Right? I know, I've, I've even heard of some people spending uh, 10 minutes talking about that word relief and what it means and all the various implications of that. But even more interesting than the fact that even kings have to go to the toilet is the cave that Saul entered. See, if you go to En Gedi, there are multiple caves. Why this one? I think it's quite obvious. If you consider the book of Ruth, which is in our Bibles right before 1 Samuel, Ruth in chapter 2 happened to walk upon the fields that belonged to Boaz. And even there, just like you do see here in 1 Samuel, 
the sovereign hand of God is mysteriously orchestrating all events. See, in God's sovereign economy, there is no such thing as coincidence or luck, is there? And here, Saul just happened to go to the cave out of many where David was. David and his men were sitting deep inside the dark cave as Saul did his thing. And Saul, he was quite vulnerable since no one was protecting him. As you will also see in chapter 26 when he and his army were in a camp and Abner, his commander, failed to protect him as they were all in a deep sleep. But in reality, even though it doesn't overtly say here in the passage, God was in charge of the entire situation. And Saul had not a clue about this in this cave bathroom. We see the hands of God's providence in bringing Saul to the exact cave in which David and his men were hiding. Phenomenal. Even though David and his men were on the run and life was out of control for them, God's sovereign hand was guiding this whole episode. Now in verse 4, it's like David's men could not believe their eyes. Is that Saul that we see coming into the cave we are by, our, by himself? I mean, Saul walked right into our hands. It's our lucky day, David. And David, as you see there, his men had a plan that they were devising based on the knowledge that David was, as you've been learning, was eventually going to become the next king of Israel. And now Saul walking in on them? I mean, it's just amazing. They, they supposed this was David's chance and that God had blessed this very moment. No doubt they too wanted relief from this manhunt that they've been running from. They, I mean, they must have been exhausted. I'd probably be thinking the same thing as David's men. Take them out. Let's end this thing once and for all. <laughs> But outside of the Lord, you've got to understand this, outside of the Lord promising that David would be the next king, there is nothing explicitly in the previous chapters of 1 Samuel before this where the Lord ever told David that he would definitely give Saul into his hand. He told David that he would give the Philistines into his hands in the previous chapter, verse 4, but not Saul. So maybe they thought any enemy of David would be given into his hands. But what do you notice here? In verse 4, at the end of verse 4, David arose. He arises anyway. It's like he's listening to his men. Uh, the tension is thick, is it not? What, what's David going to do? What's he going to do? Here's his chance to take out Saul and end this hunting game once and for all. But, but something happens at the end of verse 4. Instead of cutting down Saul, getting rid of the man, he alters Saul's royal wardrobe. What? <laughs> Why this and not cutting off his head? Sticking a sword through him. As you notice, it says that David cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly at the end of verse 4, quietly in a stealth manner. We don't know how this came about, but it seems like God prevented Saul from noticing that this happened. 
Maybe his robe was off of him at that point or just hanging around him as he was going to the bathroom. We don't know exactly, but God prevented Saul from noticing. As you will see again in chapter 26, God preventing Saul from noticing and putting his deep men in a sleep when David goes into their camp and takes their things. But what is significant about Saul, I'm sorry, David cutting off Saul's robe? Why the robe? Why the robe? Well, if you remember, I know you've been in 1 Samuel for a little while now, but if you remember, a couple times before this incident in chapter 24, we see a robe a couple of times. We see that Hannah makes a little robe for Samuel as he goes to the tabernacle. We also see in chapter 15, which we'll just see in a second, that Samuel, the robe, is torn from Saul, which is an indicator which symbolizes that the kingdom has been torn away from Saul. But the robe signified royalty, authority, and in this case with Saul, it signifies kingship. Plus, in one sense, it could mean that this cut piece of robe that David took off at his own hands symbolized the transferring of the kingship from Saul to David. The text doesn't say that explicitly, but as we're leading up to the point where Saul's kingship is about to be done away with and David is about to take over, this is kind of a symbolic gesture of what is about to take place later on. Let me just remind you as I'm talking about this, go back to 1 Samuel 15 if you will. And let me just read verses 26 to 28 which indicates this. 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 26, and this is after the whole um, Amalek uh, debacle and uh, Saul not wiping out all the Amalekites and disobeying God's word in that moment. Uh, Verse 26 says, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And that we learn is to be David, the man after God's own heart. Back to 1 Samuel 24. What happens next? Something unusual happens. Unusual because I suppose for many people what happens next is not a common occurrence. Remember, people usually want to take revenge. Most would have gone through what David could have done by killing Saul, killing the enemy. Make life easier by taking out the hunter. But in verse 5, what you see here that David's conscience, as the text says, bothered him. Literally, when it says his conscience, it means his heart. His internal being bothered him. That word bothered means to be struck. It's like a sword pierced him through the heart after he cut off a piece of Saul's robe. Because by doing so, by cutting off that piece, David was acting in rebellion and disloyalty to Saul. And his conscience burned 
he might have been thinking about Exodus 22, verse 28. Exodus 22, verse 28, which says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, we all know that the conscience is a good thing, that God has given every single one of us to know when we have done something good or bad, right or wrong. Either it condemns us or it condones us. And in order for the conscience to directly, uh, to accurately function the way God intended the conscience to function and not be tainted by sin or for the conscience to not be seared, however, the conscience must be filled and fed and informed with and by the word of God. Now, because of previous revelation of who Saul was, the anointed one of the Lord, and, and, and words like from the book of Exodus, David was deeply disturbed. He knew he did wrong. He knew it was wrong to, to, to curse God, of course, but also to kill God's chosen ones, his rulers. I mean, this is plausibly one reason why David was considered a man after God's own heart. Our conscience, too, must be daily, Romans 12, renewed by the word of God for it to function properly so that when we are on the precipice of doing something sinful or wrong, that the word of God ignites within us an understanding that this is wrong turn away, repent, trust in God and obey his word because ignoring the conscience is a dangerous thing. David longed to obey God above all else. His conscience was tender. He knew that God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. In fact, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul's royal coronation was public. And so David returns to his men, and they're probably waiting for the good news is, did you take him out? But then David says something to them. Notice in verse 6, he says, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. This probably perplexed them. I mean, David used a very strong expression here in verse 6 when he said, far be it from me. It's like an exclamation point, never would I do such a thing to the Lord's anointed. Why? Why didn't David? Well, in verse 6, he, he, he gives the reason for why his conscience bothered him so much. Why? What's the primary reason? The Lord. Notice in verse 6 alone, the Lord, Yahweh, is used three times. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Saul was Yahweh's Mashiach. He was an anointed one. He was a type of Messiah that God appointed, anointed, and called Saul to be king. Even though God took his spirit away from Saul, David would never, ever lay a hand on him or take out one of uh, God's chosen people because Yahweh sovereignly set Saul apart as king. I mean, this is what made David a man after God's own heart. Even if and when he sinned, his heart was sensitive. His heart was sensitive to the Lord's commands in sovereign ways. 
And therefore, he repented. He, he, he did not take out Saul and he sought to obey God in this matter at this moment. David knew without a doubt that Saul was the Lord's anointed, that Saul was the chosen one, the king, and he knew that it was the Lord's sovereign prerogative. It belonged to the Lord alone to, to lift up or take down a king. When David could take revenge on Saul, he chose not to. What, driv, what, what drove him? What compelled him? First and foremost, God's sovereignty over his life and over this situation, over Saul's life, and also God's word. And so I ask you, in terms of our own lives, as we consider what is going on here, when you're in a situation where you could retaliate, how do you respond? Does your conscience direct you to God's word, or do you surrender to sinful ways? Do you recognize that the hand of God is, is upon you in all events, orchestrating every single event of your life, knowing that all things work together for good for those who love him. Yes, even those trials, even the sufferings, even the persecutions, even when there is someone in your life that is a thorn in your flesh. Do you fear and trust God's sovereign lordship over all matters, more than what men say, more than what others say, you're trusting God that even in these most tempting and trying times, God is over you. And so David, as we come to the end of this section in verse 7, after he took the log out of his own eyes, he took the speck out of his men's eyes and persuaded his men, who were his loyal followers, and they obeyed him because of his words. And his appeal was to Yahweh and God's ways. David feared God more than he feared men or even Saul. It was God alone that drove David to do what he did. Well, at the end here, Saul arose, he left the cave, and he went on his way, not even knowing at all what just transpired in that cave. Not knowing that his life was spared by David. He was soon to be reminded as we press on into this passage of God's providence and sovereignty over David and himself and the fact that God is the one who chose David. God is the one who spared his life and God is even the one who rejected Saul. Now we get to the speech portions of this text and David now gives his lengthy speech to Saul to try to prove his innocence to him and it's a fascinating section loaded with so much truth and we really see David, his heart on his sleeve here. Let's read uh, the second section. Here we see the second way that David responds, and we ought to respond as well when we are faced with situations of being harmed or hurt and how we ought to respond. And the second thing we are to do after acknowledging God's sovereignty is trust God's righteous judgment. Trust God's righteous judgment, verses 8 to 15. Let's read that. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. 
And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, no one perceived that there is no rebellion or, sorry, no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Wow. I love that portion of this chapter. And again, you see David, his heart is being worn on his sleeve as, he try, as he's trying to prove his innocence to King Saul. All the while, however, he continues to trust in the Lord, not just in his sovereignty as we saw in the first section, but now he trusts that the Lord is the true and righteous judge. His correct theology, if you will, influenced the way he lived and handled this moment. See, in verse 8, as Saul leaves, it says, David arose and went out of the cave and, and called after Saul. He, he waited for a little while for Saul, for there to be some distance between himself and Saul. He was not a dumb man. But notice, because Saul obviously could have, you know, pounced on him or sent his army on him or, or whatnot. But notice something here, how David gives recognition and honor in his speech to Saul. When he could have killed him, he blesses him. And he refers to him as four different uh, titles or names in this section. He calls him Lord, King, the Lord's anointed, and my father. And then beyond that, what else does he do? He prostrates himself on the ground, demonstrating his humility before King Saul. I mean, instead of cursing Saul, instead of killing Saul, he blessed him with kind words of honor and loyalty. David was demonstrating his loyalty before Saul concerning the fact that Saul is what? The anointed one of the Lord. David keeps reminding himself and Saul that he is the one anointed by the Lord. I mean, when you recognize that God is the sovereign one and that he is just, you do not have to worry about doing such acts of humility and honor and blessings upon someone, even those who are your enemy. I mean, I'm reminded of 1 Peter. As Peter is talking to the Christians during that time in Rome who were being persecuted by those who hated Christ and wanted to see their demise. Let's just go there for a moment and see how the New Testament demonstrates how we are to bless those who are even our enemies and seek to do our harm. 1 Peter chapter 3. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire thing here, but I want you to note 1 Peter 3 verses 9 to 12. And let me just read starting at verse 8. 1 Peter 3 starting at verse 8. 
To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And now let's skip down to verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And I'll stop down. I'll stop right there. David sanctified the Lord in his own heart. He knew who the Lord was. He knew who Saul was. And therefore, he could demonstrate such acts of humility, honor, and loyalty loyalty to the man who was trying to kill him. And he blessed him by saying kind words about him and truth about him and bowed down before him. God, David was doing right by showing kindness to Saul and showing honor to him as king and God's sovereign choice of Saul. But this didn't stop David also. I want you to realize this. This didn't stop David from confronting and also calling out Saul. Just because we trust in God's judgment and sovereignty does not mean that we don't confront and seek peace with men. Doesn't Paul even say to try as best as you can to seek peace with all men insofar as it's possible with you? And so in verse 9, David confronted Saul that Saul was doing something he probably shouldn't have been doing. He was listening to the words of men. These words that Saul was listening to were fabricated. They were false. The thing is, David did not intend evil towards Saul. Not at all. We often see Saul in the previous passages listening more to the voice of men than to the voice of God. It was his pattern. Samuel even rebuked Saul for not following Saul's God's command. But David, on the other hand, never once exhibited, never once any modicum of betrayal to Saul. And Saul knew it. Saul knew it. Instead of trusting God like David did or going to David and talking to David himself, Saul let his own jealousy, his own anger get the best of him. How often do we at times regard the voice of men rather than consulting with the one with whom we might have an issue? And more so, how often do we lack trust in God's sovereignty in our life and his judgment and his doing all things right and take matters into our own hands and do foolish things? See, there's obviously nothing wrong with receiving wise counsel from godly men and women. The Proverbs encourage us to do so. We should, but we must also always make sure that any counsel that we receive is in line with the word of God. But David, he does recognize God's sovereign protection over him. In verse 10, because as it says in verse 10, it was the Lord who put Saul in the cave. Behold, verse 10, it says, This day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today in my hand in the cave. And now he proves, David proves to Saul that he could have killed him, but he did not. What are his reasons? Why didn't he do this? Well, we're already getting a glimpse of that, but we learn more here. 
One, he had pity. He had compassion. He looked on Saul with compassion, almost in a pathetic way. Here he was relieving himself. He could have killed him, but instead he had compassion on him. And number two, again, what was the main primary drive that drove David not to kill Saul? David said, because he is the Lord's anointed, chosen by God. David would not strike him. But this is what's also amazing. Look at verse 11. Not only does David call Saul Lord, King, anointed one, but also my father? Wow. Well, we can't remember, of course, that Saul was David's father-in-law. Saul gave to David one of his daughters. And by calling him my father signifies a tenderness, a closeness to Saul. I mean, this, by, by David doing this, this, this all the more adds to Saul's foolish behavior and his caustic behavior toward David. He was like a father to David, and yet he was on the hunt to kill him. And David shows physical evidence that he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. What is that evidence? The piece of robe. See, Saul, I have this right in my hand. I was right next to you. You didn't even know it. I could have struck you down. But you, Saul, are the opposite. You are lying in wait to kill me. There's no evil rebellion and sin in me toward you, but you are lying in wait. That term, lying in wait, means to hunt down in order to kill. And that's what Saul was doing. He was treating David like a vicious animal to be hunted and killed. We talked about this morning in the hermeneutics class that if Saul had 85 priests murdered, then who is David? Just take out David as well. We know this far in the narrative, and so does Saul, that David also is God's anointed. God chose David to be the next king. Saul was being defiant. Saul cared more for his name, his reputation, his kingship. And he was willing to kill his son-in-law, the one who slew Goliath. He was willing to kill his armor bearer, his personal musician, and the next king of Israel, also chosen by God. Saul, in fact, was disobeying Exodus 23, verse 7. Exodus 23, verse 7, which says, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. But David, on the other hand, he's appealing to a higher standard. Notice in verse 12, this is really the gist of this section. He says in verse 12, May Yahweh, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. David appeals to Yahweh as the true and righteous and perfect judge between him and Saul. David understands, again, that God appoints kings and he disposes of kings. Amen? I think we can say an amen to that, especially in a world in which we live where there are tyrannical despots who are putting themselves in a position of king and president and they want to control the populace. And most of them are evil. But God not only has placed them there in his sovereign hand and, and orchestration of things, but he also will remove them in his timing. David knows that as the righteous judge of all the earth, that God will mete out justice. 
He prayed for this in the Psalms. He entrusted his life and circumstances into God's hands. David keeps saying, my hands, my hands, my hands, many times in his speech. See, it, it wasn't his hands that were going to render judgment on Saul. He left judgment into God's hands. Therefore, he would not take Saul into his own hand. It's tempting to do so. If you were in David's spot, wouldn't you want to take him out? Consider this, I, I found this in one secular psychological source from 2021 talking about revenge. And they state at the top of this article, they said, quote, a new study says 58% of people want to take revenge on someone immediately instead of later. 58%. And then it goes on, 42% of particip participants were willing to wait to get more vengeance. And then they finished that statement and said this in a positive way. Revenge is a, di a dish best served hot. End quote. But we know from the word that God is perfectly sufficient, wise and righteous for adjudicating justice and vengeance. See, oftentimes, more often than not, if not all the time, our vengeance, our revenge, if we do take it, is based on impure motives. And we don't know everything. God knows the heart. God knew Saul better than David did, and thus David transferred that responsibility of judgment into God's hands. It was God's to do. Trust God. And one reason David knew this, he wasn't just, this wasn't just, a, uh, just something that was coming up in his mind. He knew it from the word of God. He was gripped by God's word. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 35, and Paul quotes this in Romans 12. Venge this is God speaking. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. David will not judge. He's distressed by this wild goose chase, but he deferred that responsibility to God. For what are we going to learn? At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is taken out. He commits suicide, but it's in the context of battle with the Philistines. It eventually happened. Now, I want to apply some things here to us. because There's a lot going on in this passage, but now today... I hope none of us are fugitives like David is in this passage, uh, being chased down by a king. But what we do know is that even in the New Testament, there's a, there's a spiritual principle here, an implication. We are not, especially as believers in Christ, we are not to take revenge into our own hands, to get even with our enemies, but we are to leave judgment into God's hands and trust his will, trust his judgment. Why don't you jot down Romans 12, and you can read this on your own time, Romans 12, 17 to 21. And Paul lays out there of what it means to not only take revenge into your own hands, but how you are to treat your enemy, especially those who hate Christ, who hate Christians, who hate the word of God. How are we as believers to respond in such a manner? Overall, we are commanded to do good even to our enemies who wish us to do harm. We are to pray for them. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are even, as we see David doing, do good deeds toward them. Heap coals upon their head. Bless them. For God will judge, God will avenge. That is not our job. Is there anyone in your life right now that you can think of or any particular situation that you're in, either in the past or the present, of someone who has hurt or harmed you or abused you or mocked you or persecuted you, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, maybe another beloved Christian? How have you responded? Retaliation? Vengeance? Hatred? Bitterness? Or have you prayed for them instead? Have you loved them? Have you trusted God in prayer and through prayer to deal justly in his time with the situation? See, I think it goes without saying that what we see here in David and how the New Testament calls us to live in such a manner, we need to not only pray, but we need to wholeheartedly depend upon the Holy Spirit for us to live in such a manner because it goes against our flesh. Even as Christians, we will at times want to seek revenge, but we must entrust that into God's hands. And we must consider Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the greater David, who as 1 Peter chapter 2 said, suffered unjustly, he did not revile in return, he did not utter threats, but entrusted his life into his Father's hands, who judges righteously." We see David doing that here, entrusting his life in God's just hands. And by doing so, David doesn't ignore the truth. If you're in such a situation, you don't ignore the truth. You don't confront. You don't try to seek reconciliation. You absolutely do. David doesn't ignore the truth. He calls a spade a spade. Look in verse 13. It says, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David uses a proverb, an axiom, a general truth in verse 13, one we, are, one we are familiar with. In other words, what is he saying here with this proverb? A bad tree bears bad fruit. Actions reveal the heart. Evil motives result in evil deeds and evil words. David, on one hand, revealed himself to be righteous and good for not putting his hand against Saul. If he really was wicked, as Saul thought him to be, he would have killed Saul. But Saul revealed himself, on the other hand, to be the wicked one. How? By his actions. By chasing down and trying to murder the next king of Israel. Actions speak loudly, do they not? Character exhibits the state of the heart. Words reveal the hidden person of the part. And we see that Old Testament correlation here is with what Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 7, something we're, we're, we're all familiar with, where Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. A bad tree does not produce bad fruit, does it? Or a good fruit, rather. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, does it? He also says in Mark chapter 7 that out of the heart flows all kinds of evil and sin. And this is what is being exhibited in Saul. He had a wicked heart and it was proven by David. 
See, David was defending himself that he did not have evil in his heart towards Saul, and he proved it by not taking matters into his own hands and killing Saul. For in verse 15, David repeats what again? That the Lord is the judge. Verse 15, the Lord, Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me in your hand. God would arbitrate between the two of them. This was David's ironclad confidence. And at the end of 15, something that's very natural to David, something that he does here at the end of his speech, he adds a quick prayer. And he says, may he, may God see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And again, as we know, as we look ahead, this prayer was answered. David was eventually delivered by Saul's hands. All in God's timing, though. Sometimes it's very, very difficult for us to wait and be patient, but it all came about in God's perfect sovereign timing. Not David's timing, but for now, because he was being pursued by an incontrollable, psychologically disturbed king who hunted him down. David, as David calls himself, a a dead dog, a mere flea, someone of little, little significance whom Saul was never to capture anyway. Well, we heard from David. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, more about Saul here as we come to the end of this amazing passage. And now we finally hear Saul speak, starting at verse 16. So when we are dealing with difficult people who seek our harm, as we see Saul doing to David, number one, let's remember, acknowledge God's sovereignty. And number two, as we just learned, trust in God's righteous judgment. Number three, Verses 16 to 22, the third way, third thing that we are to do as we find ourselves in situations like this, as David did, is remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. Let's read verses 16 to 22. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand, verse 21, so now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Here we are reminded that God promised David that he would be king, and Saul would eventually fall. What we see here in Saul's lengthy speech is a man who is bewildered and duplicitous, and there is a tender moment of heartfelt conviction and remorse for what, we ha- for what Saul has done, but, but we also see the same man who desires self-preservation. He's in it for himself. 
while we recognize a sliver of confession and sorrow for Saul's actions, we know that two chapters later, he's right back to his murderous and sinful shenanigans. We see one who, who might have had sorrow, but it's short-lived, and repentance is absent. Notice, too, in verse 16, as David called Saul father, Saul calls David his son, which also is a term of closeness rather than what he had been calling him previously in scornful ways, the son of Jesse. But why did Saul weep? Was it genuine? Was he convicted? Was he truly repentant? Was he like David who gave matters into God's hands? Or, rather, was he just concerned about his own life? Being caught for his sin. Facing the consequences of being caught. I mean, he did seem genuinely moved by David because he did weep. David, after all, just heaped coals of kindness over him by not killing him and speaking well of him. In verse 17, Saul recognized that David is more righteous, more good than he who had been dealing wickedly with him. I mean, this does not seem bad, right? Okay, Saul's on the right track. He seems to be waking up. He could be dead right now, but he's not. And in verses 18 and 19, Saul admits that the Lord delivered him into David's hand and that if he were David's true enemy, then David would certainly have killed him. I mean, Saul must have been thinking this defies how most humans would respond. But what we do see here as well, intermingled with his so-called repentance and weeping, is that he has a worldly mindset. He's more focused on himself that on God and God's word. Yes, we see Saul blessing David. We see him praying for him. And he asks Yahweh to reward David. I mean, he did go from being a predator to praying in this very short-lived moment. Nevertheless, just because Saul knew this, it does not mean that he was ready and willing to hand over the kingdom to David. He knew about the kingdom. He knew that David was going to be the next king, but he was not ready to hand it over right then and there. Saul's recognition that David was to be the next king was not a happy, contented recognition, but one with an ulterior motive. How do I know this? Look at verse 21. Saul is exposed here. While he's been weeping, while he has a general confession, he's exposed in verse 21. He says, So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. I think right there what we see is David's heart on display. Saul cared more about his descendants that his descendants would be preserved and that what? His name would not be destroyed. I mean, this is something that in that culture that successor kings hoped would not happen to them, that their entire family would not be wiped out. And this is what Saul is asking to the next king of Israel that you would not do this. He's told David, swear to me by the Lord. Swear to me. This, was, this is, was the strongest, most emphatic oath one could keep. He uses the Lord's name to get something for himself, for self-centered, self-preserving reasons. And David did spare his life. He already did that. 
And God spared Saul's life and let him live up to this point. And yet all Saul could think about was a blessing for himself. Nothing new for Saul. Verse 22, David swore to Saul, which means that David did keep his promise. We learned that even David in the past also swore to his best friend Jonathan that he would not cut off his descendants. And what you're going to learn in 2 Samuel is that that one that David did not cut off is Mephibosheth. So David kept his promise. But as, as we draw to a close in this, pa- in this passage, we learn also that David is no fool. He's not totally buying everything Saul is saying, is he? He knew Saul was unstable, paranoid, and self-focused. For David went right back, as it says at the end of verse 22, went right back up to the stronghold because he knew Saul was not being fully genuine. There was no genuine heart repentance within him. Though he had tears, he wasn't turning his life around. He was more like Esau who shed tears for what he did. He was more like Judas who realized what he did and then committed suicide. There was no genuine, heartfelt, true repentance in Saul. In fact, Saul never wrote a Psalm 32 or a Psalm 51. When David sinned, he confessed and went right to the Lord. Well, you're going to see that Saul once again pursues David in chapter 26 for the last time before God dealt his final blow to Saul at the end of 1 Samuel Saul wanted revenge, but he never got it. But God had his day of vengeance on Saul. And just a few things here I want you to remember as we, as we saw these two men in this passage, two men with two different hearts regarding revenge and trust in God. We saw one wholeheartedly devoted to God and one wholeheartedly devoted to himself one who is humble and one proud, one righteous and one wicked, one who trusted in God's sovereignty, just judgment and promises, and one hoping for a good return on himself, and one continuing with jealous rage and revenge. Sadly, this account does not end with reconciliation. Saul would be back to try to terminate David But six quick things, I'm going to go through these quickly, that I want you to remember that will assist you if you are also in a position of being harassed, hurt, abused, persecuted, and how you can respond in that moment. The first three you already know, acknowledge God's sovereignty. Acknowledge God's sovereignty in every aspect of your life, even when you are being wrongfully accused by someone or they are seeking your harm. For all things work together for good. God is putting this in your life to grow you, to grow character in you, for you to become more like Jesus and for God to receive the glory. Entrust your life into his hands. Number two, trust in God's righteous judgment. That's what David did. Whether you are being persecuted or hurt or you're just seeing the evil and you're, you're troubled by the evil in our world, know that God in his timing, whether here in this life or after this life, he will carry out perfect justice and vengeance. See, it's not wrong to want justice, but revenge is not ours to take. Vengeance belongs to God alone. Number three, trust God's promises. He saved you. He justified you. 
He's sanctifying you. He has given you his spirit and he will glorify you. And one day, praise the Lord, you and I will be reigning and be, we will be in the presence of the King of Kings forever and ever where there, will no be, where there never will be any more injustice, death, or sin. God will wipe away every tear and make all things new. A couple more things. Pray for your enemy. Pray for your enemy, whoever that might be. Even Paul told Timothy in the letter to pray for kings. Pray for those who are even wicked. Pray that if they are not believers, that, that God would bring them to the point of salvation. If they are a Christian, pray that they would repent and do things God's ways. Pray for your enemy. Put on a heart of compassion like God had compassion and mercy on you. Forgive them. If they come to you and seek your forgiveness, forgiveness, be willing and ready to forgive them for the harm that they have done to you. For as Paul says in Ephesians, we are to forgive others like God has forgiven us in and through Jesus Christ. He has forgiven us of so much. Are we willing to forgive those who have hurt us? And finally, know that from our passage, while David was to be the next king that God chose from Judah, Jesus Christ is the greater and more perfect and righteous king who seek and came to seek and save the lost. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords to whom all will bend their knees eventually and confess who he is. He is the only one who can offer full pardon and full forgiveness of your sins. For he lived a perfect life. He went to the cross to die in your stead, in your place, receiving upon himself the full fury of God's judgment. He took God's judgment in your place if you will repent and turn to him in faith. He will save you from his judgment. He will save you from eternal Destruction in the lake of fire. He will save you from the consequences and penalty of your sin and he will grant you eternal life, reconciliation and you'll be with him forever. May today be the day for you of salvation. Turn to him today before it's too late. Amen? If you have any questions about salvation in Jesus Christ, Ask me or any one of the elders if you have not turned to him today. They can share with you more about the gospel and the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's contained in it. We thank you that we can learn about your sovereign work in history and Israel and in the world, as you brought the greater king, King Jesus, into, into the world to live a sinful life and die on the cross for our salvation so that we may know you and be reconciled to you. Thank you that your judgment is perfect and just. You will render one day fiery judgment against all those who reject you, all those who despise the truth, and all those who hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Lord, your mercy is on display in Christ and on the cross and in choosing a people to be saved and to worship you and to follow you for eternity. We give you the praise and the glory. We pray that you would take the word that was embedded in our hearts and minds today and that we would apply it in our daily lives. 
And Lord, you alone are worthy, and we give you the glory and praise. And we ask that you would bless the rest of our day and the rest of our fellowship together as a church. And it's Christ's name that we all pray and say, amen. I appreciate the word preached, and I'll just close our service today with Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.